Amen. Kids, you can start going to your class, but as you go, I need a couple of you to holler out on your way out. Tell me the present that the kids are most looking forward receiving this Christmas. What are the hot toys? An iPhone. <laughs> wow. Holy cow. What, what, what else? Oh, I can't discern what y'all are saying. This isn't helping. We only have about two weeks left, and it's time to get on the ball to buy your presents. Um, I wasn't expecting to hear iPhone. Man. Uh, Tastes are different these days, I guess. And, uh, but I, I had a visual I was going to bring, uh, but in the hustle and bustle of our yesterday, it accidentally got thrown away. But I don't know so if any of you have this. I might need to borrow yours. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but Amazon has sent out a toy catalog. And for the last three weeks, that has been like the most coveted thing in our house. And all our kids are fighting over this toy catalog. And, you know, they're circling all the things that they're not going to get. And uh, it's just generating uh, discontentment. And uh, as I'm looking at this toy catalog, there's so much irony here in Amazon's Christmas toy catalog. And so I don't know if they're like the evil empire who systematically like destroy all the brick and mortar stores. And then, so Sears doesn't exist anymore, but then they stole Sears's idea of sending the toy catalog to all the kids to generate the things they want for Christmas. And some of you might remember when you would get that big, thick, you know, Christmas catalog and you would look through it for days and find the things you want in there. So they're, they're stealing that from the playbook. But if you've seen the catalog on the cover, the, the cover is very interesting because there's a couple of kids and they're in the middle of full-on childhood delight playing, but then what are they playing with? You look at, and they're actually on the cover not playing with any of the toys that are in the catalog. Do you know what they're playing with on the cover? They are playing with Amazon boxes. They have taken the boxes and turned them into like outfits. So one looks like a sheep and the other one's like, like turned into a, with wings. And they've turned, they're not even playing with the toys. They're playing with the boxes. And I'm looking at that wonder, like, are they mocking us? Like, are they looking at us as parents and saying, you are such fools. Like, we know you're going to spend an inordinate amount of money and all this stuff. And at the end of the day, your kids are just going to play with our boxes. And every parent knows what it's like to spend, you know, all Christmas Eve putting together the double-decker, super-duper, frozen, phantasmic castle. And uh, by the end of the day on Christmas, it's half-broken, and they've turned the box into a rowboat, and that's what they're playing with. And I wonder, you know, when kind of God looks at us as we celebrate Christmas, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's the greatest gift you could ever give. And I wonder if sometimes he thinks, all right, the, like, the point of the gift isn't necessarily all of the cheesy movies and the fake snow and the hot chocolate. That's kind of like the box, but the point of the gift is the son. And what we want to experience this morning, what we want to experience this Christmas is to have a glimpse into the glory of the gift so we don't get sidetracked with just getting caught up and playing with the box. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, 
And if you have your bulletin, it'll be helpful to kind of follow along because we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, it'll be helpful uh, to turn and look at Isaiah chapter 9. Because Isaiah is one of the best places if you want to find out and learn who Jesus is and what he came to do and what were people's expectations for him. You know, Isaiah is the, is, is the book. It's this beautifully written, profound, powerful, theologically rich and dense book. And from Isaiah 7 to 12, it gives us, um, these are kind of uh, the, the, the highest concentration of Christmas passages in the Old Testament. There's all these beautiful passages about Emmanuel's going to come and who is he going to be and what he's going to do. So what I want to look at Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to focus primarily on verses 2 through 7. But the first thing we need to do, I want to take a few minutes and just kind of walk you through the order and the structure of the text so you can see what is there. And then after we see what is there, then we'll look for a few minutes about, all right, what does this mean? But I think it's important to look at the structure because this is uh, Isaiah and most of the prophets are, are poets. They're writing poetry. And you have to really see the structure and you have to feel the symbolism if the poetry is going to have its power on you. So whenever you're reading the prophets in the Bible, especially, it's helpful to think, all right, what metaphors are they using? What images? What symbols? And then what are they trying to teach through those metaphors? Actually... Not only will it be helpful for you to have the outline so you can see, it'll be helpful for me to have the outline so I can see. But what I want you to look is look how it's ordered and structured in verses 1 through 7. And verses 1 through 3 is going to set up the hope. So this is the hope described. And then there's this beautiful balance and parallel in verse 1, what God does. In verse 2, what the people enjoy. In verse 3, what then is the result or what follows from that. And then 4 is going to parallel that. And again, it's a reiteration and a repetition. The hope explained in verse 4, what God does. And then in verse 5, what they then enjoy. And then what follows from it. So let's walk through it and just get a, a sense of what he's saying here. Look in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the deep darkness on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you and with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they have divided the spoil. So this first part is setting up the hope that is going to come when this Savior comes, with the gift when he comes. Verse 1, look what it says, what God does. Now it's interesting, in the Hebrew it's hard to translate, you can't really translate it in English, but in the Hebrew there's no verbs. It's just gloom, anguish. And just said, this is just the way it is. You just, this is how life is. There's no verbs. This is just facts. People are in darkness. They're in anguish. And it's interesting because one of the things that they have to decide here and one of the things that the people of God have to decide in every age and every time is how do we read our experience? The facts of their life is that they're in darkness. There's anguish. This season in which they're in, 
culturally and nationally is a very difficult season of military oppression, economic downturn. Everybody is suffering in some way. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't pretend like that all of the anguish is an illusion. It owns it and calls it out and said, darkness, anguish, gloom. But then the, the real challenge is that even though the anguish is true, it's not the whole truth. See, there's another way that you can look and interpret the facts. You can give over to despair or you can hang on to hope. And this whole section is an encouragement to them to hang on to hope despite appearances. Hang on to hope. And so what it says in verse 1 is that God actually is going to bring about a new situation. At one time, they were put into contempt, but now it's going to be made glorious. And then in verse 2, look what the people enjoy. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep, on them deep darkness, a light has shone. So there's now this new situation that they're going to be entering into. They were in darkness, and now the light shines. And then look what follows. Verse 3, what follows is rejoicing. Five times here's joy, rejoice, joy, gladness. And then the images, joy at the harvest, joy when you divide the spoils. So that's what follows. And then in 4, 5, and 6, and 7, he's going to explain, how do you know all this is going to happen? All this you can hold on to hope because, or for, he's going to do something. Look in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden. He's going to break, there's something he's going to break. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling, this is an image of war, that he's victorious. And then 6, for unto us the child is born. So he's going to break something, he's going to be victorious over something, and then he's coming. The child is coming. And so there's these fruits as it moves. So as you can kind of see, look at the, the structure. Now let's think about each of these things. All right, what does that actually mean? When you look at this promise and the hope, what is, in essence, the Lord is holding out in his son a gift to his people, and he's saying, here's the gift. Now he wants us to experience it and unwrap it in all of its fullness. And what you see here in this first part of this section is that the gift is that the king is coming, a child is coming, and he's going to do three things when he comes. He's going to conquer the darkness, he's going to bring abundance, and then he's going to end or heal the brokenness. So when you think about the gift of Christmas, the gift of Christmas is so much more than all of the trappings of Christmas. It's so much more than candy canes and lollipops. It is that the darkness is going to end, is that the brokenness is going to be healed, and that abundance is coming. So let's think about those, those three things for a couple minutes. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now he highlights the land in the north, uh, Naphtali, Zebulon, Galilee. This is northern Israel. They were the first to go into exile when the Assyrians came south. So the Assyrians come from the north, and they're the first to get sent into exile. And so on them, in essence, the darkness came first upon them, and they dwelt in it the longest. But on them it will be the first to dawn. The light will dawn. And then Matthew picks up this in, in, in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus goes into the north. He becomes the Nazarene. He goes into Galilee as he's coming to the place of darkness. 
and he's the light that they see. But notice the two things. They walked in darkness, and they dwelt in a land of deep darkness. They walked. This is the way of life. Their lifestyle was marked by darkness. But not just the, the way they lived, where they lived was a dark place. So in these two, a lifestyle and a life. And it's worth thinking, in what areas do we live in darkness? I mean, this might be hard for us to relate or connect to. So, I mean, we live in, I mean, this is Florida. This is the sunshine state. Surely, if anybody in the world doesn't live in darkness, it's us. We live in the light. But then it's worth thinking about, all right, what is the image? Every time you read the prophets, you say, all right, they're using metaphors. What, what's the metaphor here? What's it symbolize? And I think one of the places we can go, and we mentioned this, or mentioned this last night in the candlelight service, if you want to think about darkness, you think about Ernest Shackleton, who led uh, the first uh, expedition to cross the South Pole in Antarctica, and his fabulous book called Endurance, and about the incredible um, feat of endurance that they endured to do that. And uh, one of the things he talks about there is of all of the sufferings that they had to endure, you know, the, the, the freezing cold, the losing limbs to frostbite, the starvation, the worst part of the suffering was the polar night, the darkness, the three months of total darkness. And he says what it would do to you is first it would disorient you. You didn't know where you were going. You had no direction. You just felt aimless. You were just walking. And then it would, um, it would depress you. So you would just be in the darkness, and you would be uh, depressed. And you think about, like, you know, do people, even though we live in the sunshine state, is there still dark? Are people disoriented? Do they feel that they don't know where to go and are just aimless in life? Are people depressed? You know, one of the things I think is most discouraging about our current cultural reality is the rise of systematic depression in certain age groups. There's interesting studies on this. They're saying, you know, you have uh, kids who kind of been raised in the social media generation, the incredible, it's an unusual spike in things like depression. Why? Why is that? And I think one of the things the prophets would say is because you're in darkness, and the word has to come into darkness. It distorts, it disorients. You don't really know who you are, where you're going, what's true. You can't tell if danger is close or it's far. And then it's into the light that it comes. But he doesn't just come to enter. It's not just a light into the darkness. Look at verse 3. He comes, and when he comes, he brings abundance. You have multiplied the, the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice as with joy at the harvest and are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, there's two metaphors he uses here. The first metaphor is a full harvest when you celebrate because the work of your hands has produced this abundant crop. You know, in this world, it was feast or famine. When uh, it wasn't harvest time, you were, for the most part, famining. When it was harvest time, you were feasting. And what it says, there was certain joy when you could celebrate and feast. And he says, when the Lord comes, it's going to be like those seasons of feasting where we get to eat of the fruit of our labors. But then also like the, the joy after a military battle where you get to divide the spoils, this time of victory. But what this means is when the king comes, the gift he gives, he gives the gift of fruitfulness. I don't know if you ever thought about what a tremendous gift that 
gospel-generated fruitfulness is for your life. What it means, and we saw this as one of the themes in Ecclesiastes, if under the sun is all that there is, then everything here is meaningless, and you have to own that. But if that's not all there is, if there's another sun you can live under, and one day we'll stand before him to give an account, then not only is everything not meaningless, everything actually in the light of him is now meaningful. It's not that nothing matters, now everything matters. Because he sees and he cares. So they're actually now, in the light of his coming, nothing is meaningless. And nothing is wasted. And this is one of the gifts of Christmas is that it can transform your everyday activity. So now, in the light of the gospel, none of it is wasted. One of the things Jesus says, even when you, give, even you do something as small as giving a cup of cold water to someone in need, if you do that in my name... If you do that because you're grateful for what you've received from me, and if you do that because you want to extend that same generosity and love that you received out to others, if you do it in my name, I will remember it, and you'll be rewarded. In the light of him, now nothing uh, is meaningless. Every activity has meaning and can be fruitful. But then also the second image there is the image of victory. So now what it means is that one of the great gifts of the gospel is that now no failure is final. There's no failure that's final. It's when he comes, he has the power to transform every failure into a victory, into a triumph. Nothing is ultimately lost. And I think if you think about it, that's one of the incredible, the, the most powerful things about the gospel is his, God's incredible ability to turn even things that seem like they're a disaster or a failure into our good. So one of the things when he comes, he brings abundance, and that means fruitfulness and victory. But notice the third thing in verse 4, when he comes, he's going to end the brokenness. And this is, there's three images that he uses in verse 4 that get at what people are experiencing. Notice in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is going back to the story of Gideon when Gideon comes and he breaks. They were under the yoke of oppression. And this is an interesting verse because what it's getting at is that when he comes, there's actually things that are, that are weighing you down, that are oppressing you, that he's going to break. And I think one of the biggest challenges for us today to live well and to live wisely is to understand what, what these things really are. So there's three images here. And all of those images are actually images of good gifts that God gives Remember, the way Satan works is, and we saw this when we were doing our, seven, our series of the seven deadly sins, the way, the way Satan primarily works is he takes God good gifts and he twists them, he turns them, he breaks them. But these three things, the yoke, staff, rod, are all good gifts that God gives so we can flourish. They're images, they're symbols, metaphors of authority and responsibilities and uh, they're, they're good gifts. So originally the yoke is, is in essence a symbol of the things that are your responsibilities, your yoke, the things you are responsible to do. And then the rod and the staff are things that are used by a loving good shepherd to guide you. The staff is used to guide. The rod is used to protect. 
So these are the things to guide and protect you. And, and if you are in the service of a loving shepherd, he puts an easy burden on you that doesn't destroy you, then he guides and directs you. But what's happened to them is that somehow this tyrannical slave master has come and turned those good gifts into objects of oppression, objects of exploitation. So now this, this yoke is on them that is unjust, and the rod that should protect them is actually beating them. It's, it's harming them, not protecting them. And I think one of the challenges of how we can live well is we often actually have those things confused, like the good yoke that God gives versus the bad one. And you can even see it like we, we often think that um, any responsibilities that placed on us are somehow like weighing us down when many of those responsibilities are God's good gifts to us. You can even see it in the term like adulting. When people say, I'm adulting, I'm doing the laundry. I'm adulting, I'm paying our bills. It's like, when, like Adult, being an adult is not a yoke that now is somehow weighed down on your childlike soul. Like doing the laundry is just your basic responsibility for cleanliness. And so you're, this is not a, this is not like laundry is not like a rod that you're being whipped with. So that's not the image. But there are people in the world who generally are, are genuinely are being exploited and disadvantaged and taken advantage of. And one of the things he says here is that he's going to come and he's going to break those things. So you actually see this cycle of three things. And it's, it's so beautiful how he gives you one kind of image and then he gives you two more images and then he gives you three images. So one image of light coming into the darkness, two images of joy at the harvest and the victory, and then three images of him breaking the yoke, the staff, and the rod. And then look in verse 5, he takes you, and this is probably the strangest verse in the whole section, because you read the whole section, and some of it is very familiar, you hear it read every Christmas, and then in verse 5, it's, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You think, what is that doing here? That doesn't make it into Charlie Brown's Christmas special. Like, what is he talking about? And then it goes right into some of those precious verses in Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Amen and hallelujah. But then there's that interesting image in verse 5. What is going on with the warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood? What do we make? How do we make sense of that? And so actually this is giving us kind of a key and a window into how he's going to accomplish all of those victories. You know, you look at this, this image of the bloody battlefield, but it's the image, the image is, or the metaphor is that there's been this incredible battle and it's all bloody, but the people who actually come onto the battlefield are actually the ones who are cleaning it up. So the battle is over, the victory has been won, and now their role is to come onto the field and, in essence, clean it up. 
Because one of the things we actually see, you look at those three gifts that he brings at Christmas. He ends the darkness. He brings abundance. He heals the brokenness. At Christmas, we celebrate that uh, those things started to come, but at Easter, we celebrate that those things were ultimately overcome. And on the cross, he actually enters into the darkness so that we could ultimately live in the light. And on the cross, he actually experiences God abandonment. So we then could be the recipients of God's abundance. And on the cross, he actually is broken, so our brokenness can be healed. And so the resurrection, we celebrate the ultimate victory of all of those things. So at Christmas, we celebrate him coming to bear all those things. And at Easter, we celebrate his triumph over all those things. But we have to remember, uh, in between those two times, life is a war zone. It's a battlefield. And you can even see that in all the different Christmas stories. There's elements of the Christmas stories that are bloody. One of the things I was so struck by this past year when we were going through Revelation, is how one of the things John is going to do in Revelation is he's going to kind of pull the curtain back so you can see what's happening uh, behind the scenes in a spiritual realm. And he gives you the story of this roaring dragon who's seeking to destroy and devour the (coughs) the children of the of the woman. But Christmas in some ways is in the middle of a war zone, but the the promise and the hope is that the victory has been won, and our responsibility is to come in behind and clean up. You know, we gave out the little books for uh, Advent, the the Jesus, uh, I forget what they're called, the little blue books that are out there, and it's really sweet. One of the things is kind of track the kind of children's progression as they go through it and and uh, and on page one is page one is about Genesis chapter three and the kids draw this picture and this year uh, the picture that Maddie drew because it's going to the promise that the promise is that the seed of the woman he's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent and that's the story of the Bible about how the seed of the woman, the one who's going to come, and he's going to be the serpent crusher. And so she drew this image of uh, who she had Jesus stomping on the head of the snake. And uh, I love some of the, you know, this, is, this is good biblical theology. Because some of the voice, there's a voice kind of coming out of heaven that says, this is my son. And then there's a voice in the background from the people, and they say, yay, we're free. And then the voice is coming from the serpent is, come on, dude. <laughs> not sure where that came in, but that's, he's not happy. He's getting squashed. But that's actually the image that Isaiah is painting for us here, that when he comes, you're going to come into the end of the battlefield, and you're going to see the, the seed of the woman is going to be the serpent crusher. And he's going to take that squinty-eyed serpent, and he's going to crush his skull, and then we're going to move in afterwards to clean up the debris from the battle. But if you have to know that and feel that as in the time of Advent, we're longing for the one to come to do all of these things to come into the midst of darkness and shine light, to come into the midst of barrenness and bring fruit and joy, and to come into the midst of difficulty and slavery and oppression and bring the brokenness that can set us free. That's why every Christmas we sing things like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And one of the key lines is, O come thou rod of Jesse, the rod to defend us and protect us. Come and free thine own from Satan's tyranny. 
From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Because no matter who we are, there's a tyrant that looms over us that none of us can shake. The serpent has a Goliath in his army that terrorizes all of us. And we need a new David who can come and destroy him. So this Christmas, we don't just want to play with the box of Christmas. We don't want to simply settle for good vibes and groovy tunes, thinking that the best part of Christmas is the fake snow and the hot chocolate and the cheesy movies you get to watch. There's something better that's coming, and he wants us to experience the one who's conquered the darkness, who brings abundance and heals our brokenness. So let's take a few minutes and pray that we would know and experience those things in our lives and our family and our community. So Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your word, its reality and its power. And so we pray now for everyone who's come into this room. Pray that anyone who's come in and they, they know and that they feel that they're in the darkness. We pray that your word would be a light. Pray that your word would be a light that directs their path, that overcomes the darkness, that dispels any fear. We confess that we not only walk in darkness, but we live in a land of darkness. So we pray that you would be our light, that you would lead us and you guide us and help us not to be afraid. Pray for anyone who's come and they feel the sense of barrenness. They feel that their life is fruitless. They've not accomplished the things that they'd hoped. They've not seen the things that they'd hoped. They've not um, experienced the things that they desire. We pray that you would help us We thank you for the victory and the fruit that you come, but we pray that you would give us and help us to experience real life-changing fruit, the fruit of your spirit, so that we would overflow, be the kind of people who overflow with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And these would be the fruits that mark us in all ages and all stages and each and every way. And then we pray and thank you that you you come and you heal the brokenness. And then the, the way you do that is you, uh, you break the bonds, that, the, 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 the things that bind us, and then you set us free. So I pray for anyone who's coming here this morning and they know they're bound. They know that they're serving a tyrannical taskmaster who doesn't love them and have their good pray that you would help them to find healing and find liberation and find freedom. You've promised that those that your son sets free, they're free indeed. So we pray that they would find and experience freedom. Pray for everyone this holiday season as, as many people are traveling and going to different places. We ask that you help us if we are going and entering into uh, places and situations of darkness. Help us to be a light if we're going to enter into places of um, bondage. Help us to be instruments of freedom. And all this <coughs> we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.